It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? During times in this episode, there is sensitive content that may be traumatizing to some audiences. Listener discretion advised. My next guest is from the Baby Scoop era, roughly 1945 to 1975, meaning her adoption was done in secret by the Cradle Adoption Agency in Evanston, Illinois, in 1947. Her name is Melinda a. Warshaw. Her secret journey to find her biological mother began in 1970 and in 1980 was finally found. In the course of 40 years, she became an activist and advocate for adoptee rights, wrote articles for adopters Sandra Hanks and Lisa Shahar for the blog Adoption Under One Roof. She wrote her memoir in 2012, A Legitimate Life a forbidden journey of self-discovery, and started her own Facebook page. Melinda is one of the first adoptees in 2010 that I was able to be in fellowship with one-on-one as I navigated my journey towards search and reunion. She would lend her support over the years and inspire me to complete my memoir. Allow me to introduce you to someone I have known long enough to know her unwavering commitment to the adoption community. She has shared countless examples in private and public of how we as adoptees need to hear from each other because of how important our words are. Melinda, I'm so glad you're taking the time to have a conversation with me. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm great, Jennifer, and it's so good to talk to you too. And share some of my experiences so other adoptees might be able to resonate with them or get help with them or get more insight into themselves. So, sure, my pleasure. (laughs) Well, you know, you're one of the first adoptees that I met online back in 2010, and that goes back a little bit in time, and I still remember how we just connected, and it was really nice to be one-on-one with another adoptee. It's not as uh, overwhelming, we'll say, as going to a conference where there may be a hundred or more people in attendance. So I really appreciated the one-on-one that we were able to do right on through the publishing of your book, A Legitimate Life, A Forbidden Journey of Self-Discovery. And getting your book and reading it was really a a turning point for me because I think I had started reading other memoirs, but I knew you like personally. That was very special to me. Oh, and to me too, to be able to talk with you about our issues because let's face it, we now know that mainly adoptees are the ones who have been silenced and we need to talk to each other for support and to exchange our experiences and most of them are pretty similar. So true. And I know you know that 
in my book on page 91, I loved the answer that you gave. I mentioned you and your book, and I asked you this question. I said, what makes you smile the most about being a part of the adoption community? And you said, talking and reading what we all have to say about it. Would you add or change your answer to that question now? Of course. <laughs> I think that only adoptee to adoptee will be honest about their true feelings because otherwise the adopters are too afraid to tell their adopters how they feel because either the adopters will be offended, hurt, reject them. And so we remain silent about our sadness and our longing maybe for our birth mother, maybe we don't know that's what our sadness is all about. And so we repress it, it's in our subconscious. It's just so wonderful to speak to other adoptees who've had the same experience and the same underlying need to reconnect from the disconnect at the relinquishment to their own biological mother, which is probably the most natural thing on this earth. The big disconnect for us was that relinquishment. And I know for a fact that babies go into immediate grief response and cry. And back back when I was adopted, I think they, they drugged us with phenobarbital to calm us down. Now, the birth mothers, we don't have much information really on back then, but I know it was cruel and I know it was abusive. It's great to be able to now talk about it in public, online, to other adoptees, to the world, to help them understand the trauma, both birth mother and child, relinquished child experience throughout their entire life. Yes. So back to your book, A Legitimate Life, I, I remember the, hearing the title for the first time and thinking that's a powerful title. How did you come up with that? Well, being that society labeled us illegitimate, I wanted to change the narrative and take my power back as a legitimate life, you know? Right. How can any life not be legitimate? Yeah. Well, yes, because <laughs> we're labeled right. bastards, illegitimate. I mean, please. It's, it's so demeaning and so degrading that I just, it just, it makes me very sad that we're still being referred to as names like that. So the narrative had to be changed. And one of the reasons I wrote my book was so I could tell it as an adoptee's experience within their adopted family and talk about my authentic self versus my artificial self and try to show the two together operating. So that was my goal for my, my memoir. Yeah, I really enjoyed your words and I like your writing style and I highly recommend everyone get a copy. It's available on Amazon still, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll put that in the show notes as well. So how does it okay. feel to be on the other side of writing and publishing your memoir? Well, it feels great. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to talk more about my reunion and reconnecting with my bios to find my authentic self and get my genetic mirrors and understand who I really was and who I was like and who I wasn't like. That was not in the book, and I should probably write a sequel about all that, but a lot of it I put on my Facebook page, A a Legitimate Life, so you can see, and I put little captions next to the the pictures, all that I found out about my bios and who I look like and who I am like and who my subconscious knew but was covered up because I wasn't allowed to talk about it and and the uh, records were closed. So I never gave up. I had to know. It was like a, a driving force within me. So, yeah. Where would you like to start with your sharing of your adoption journey? Well, now that I know my entire story, I mean, I, I now I know. Now, I found out about two years ago. I don't know if I should start and just tell the whole thing so I don't have to write a sequel <laughs> and just zoom through it. Yeah. Or not tell it and just start in 1970 when when I began my search. I'm not sure. 1970, that's been a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's when I started my secret search. And my doctor certainly didn't want me to search. Have you always uh, so known they, you were adopted? Yeah, they told me around seven. Okay. I always had uh, nightmares and dreams that were... Once I found out who I was and I researched my name and my surnames and my father and my mother, I found out that those nightmares and dreams were really connected to them on a symbolic level. Very into higher consciousness. I do believe that they were showing me the truth, but I didn't understand it because it was all symbols, like bears on clouds reaching down, trying with their paws, and I was on the ground trying to, um, and I never knew whether they were trying to hurt me or they were trying to get me. And so I would have that nightmare, recurring nightmares, and then I had the Frankenstein nightmares. I was hearing this thump, thump, thump coming to get me, and I'd flap my arms, and I would fly high above his head, and then a plane would crash, and I would wake up. And then I had the steamroller dreams that the steamrollers were chasing me down my my street where I lived in Kettering, Ohio. And I never understood them. But when I woke up, I was always extremely sad and I always was crying until, you know, but you know, I had to get up and had to get going because my adoptive mother had me very well programmed into all sorts of activities and things like that. But it was always lurking there, and I always longed for my mom. I used to dream a lot, daydream a lot, staring out my window, wishing she'd come and get me, things like that. I never forgot her, and I was always longing for her secretly, but I couldn't tell anyone. 
Because mm. I would be punished, you see. My doctors were punishers. So you wouldn't consider your childhood as an adoptee a happy one? No, it was a pretend one. Mm. And trying to keep up with all the things my adoptive mother would have had her own biological daughter do, which were completely antithetical to what I, who I was and my lifestyle and my biorhythms. So it was like uh, she was a go-getter from morning till night, and I was very laid back. Um, um, which I also found out my bios are as well. We have a whole different style of energy than was present in my adoptive family. So it was hard, but um, I tried to please her and gave her everything I had. And I, I couldn't say no or I'd be punished. I'd be sent to my room and then I'd have a temper tantrum and throw everything around the room and break it. And uh, I was told, well, when you calm down, you come downstairs and act like a proper daughter of mine would act. Basically, that was her message. And it was a very strict upbringing in a very upper-class aristocratic household, very proper. I know you spent some time at the Cradle oh, yes. Adoption Agency. And do you have any words to say about Oh sure. That place. <laughs> and then we'll then we'll get back into nineteen seventy and your search. Okay. All right. Well, now that I know why I was adopted in the first place and sent to the cradle, it hurts. But it makes a great deal of sense. And I will go by this is something that's not in my book and I only found out a few years ago. That my mother had a high sex drive, and she got pregnant out of wedlock in 1937, and my grandparents made her marry the guy. So I have a half-brother who's 10 years older. She was going through a divorce and had an affair with my bio-father after he came back from World War II as a meteorologist over in France predicting the weather for the raids on the Nazis. So he came back, and they had a fling, the secret thing, again, she did it. Her parents, my grandparents, hid her up in their attic while she was pregnant, kept it a big secret. They were blue, all blue-collar, both, both sides of my bios. And my grandmother said, well, I've always wanted to be an upper class. She hated being blue-collar. And so she decided that the best thing she could do for me is give me the life that she always wanted. So she chose the cradle, knowing that I would be adopted by a wealthy family. So her sister, well, my biomother's sister was sworn to secrecy, and she took me to the cradle. I was born at the Edgewater Hospital in Chicago and then taken to the cradle where I guess I stayed, I don't know, for five months. And then I was finally adopted at, at around six months. We will lead into my finding out that I had no rights and they would only give me uh, unidentifying information when I began my search. Now, I understand what happened and why I was, was not kept. 
And so I have to forgive my birth mother and understand and maybe probably they had no idea that I was being adopted into an abusive dysfunctional alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. I've had other guests whose adoptions were handled by the cradle and they they said that too, the the abusive home situation throughout their childhood. Yeah, that's that's heartbreaking. Definitely. Definitely. Even Edward Albee was um he was interviewed and he said he felt very schizophrenic. I guess his play Three Tall Women are really about his birth mother and his adoptive mother and I'm not sure I haven't really looked into it. But and he was brought up by an aide, so we had kind of similar similar stories, but he never looked for his birth mother, I guess. I don't know why, but it's sad that he didn't, or if he did, he didn't say that. Yeah, and just for the listeners, the cradle is just outside of Chicago in Evanston. Been there a where, long time. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, it's been there a long time. It's been, what, 100 years maybe? Oh, yeah. And all the celebrities went there to adopt. I mean, Bob Hope, Pearl Buck, a few others that I don't know. But um, sure, I always wish that Bob Hope had adopted me. <laughs> well, we don't know his personal life. Well, I don't. So I don't know. I know that may I not have been a good least, idea. <laughs> at, no, at least he would have been funny like I am. <laughs> 1970, you embark upon a search. What's the first thing you did? Do you remember doing oh, first? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing I did was write for my unidentifying information. Okay, I received that, and uh, it was very clear that they were only going to tell me partially, like, you're Northern European, your mother finished this this much worth of school, and your father was a teacher. That was about it. And I felt insulted, frankly. Yeah, how old were you then? This is not going to stand. I'm sorry. You can't get away with this. Yeah, what age were you at that time? 23. Okay. Oh, you were real young. And I, yeah. I had left, I, I left my uh, adoptive parents because there was abuse going on there by my, had been from my childhood, sexual abuse since I was seven. And then my father came on to me when I was 23 when he was drunk. And that's when, thank God, I had a trust fund for my grandfather so I could escape. And I, I ran away, basically, and ended up in an, uh, a condo with a good friend. And that's when, you know, I, I talked to her about my situation. And it was it was great because her mother, she didn't even know who her father was. So we had a lot in common. So that's when my search began. And then from there, it just, it just, I don't know. It's just like there's so much that I had to do in order to find out who to get through the brick walls that it's mind-boggling and I even was able to do it. But yeah, that's when it started. And that's when I realized that um, I needed to know more. So then I wrote to Alma to get my adoption decree. They sent that to me. And at least it had my mother's name on it. 
baby girl, my name on it, baby girl Lumley, but I didn't know who that was, Lumley. And she was using her married name because she was in the middle of the divorce when she got pregnant with me. And she didn't want to tell her husband about me because she was afraid he would get custody. So it's a long twisted tale of fear and crazy decisions. So did you but ever I, get did you ever get your original birth certificate? Well, as we know, you were a major force in me getting my OBC. But that wasn't until you got involved with Sarah Feigenholz. And I'm not sure how long you had been involved as an activist in this in Illinois. But I finally got it in 2012 when the law was, the adoptee rights law was passed. And it was so exhilarating to see you partying at a UBC. <laughs> it was just like so great. And then I got so mad because. They said, my, all my papers were destroyed in the flood. It was just so crazy. And then finally, in 2012, I was able to get it. And uh, that was just like on an amazing day, really, to see it, even though it was kind of sad because, you know, illegitimate was marked with a big check. <laughs> and uh, birth father legally admitted, legally omitted. But it made me feel like at least I was born of this earth and I wasn't an alien. I was real. Yeah. So that was an, an important day for me. And then I was also an activist here with Unsealed Initiative in New York to help get that uh, bill passed finally by Cuomo for adoptees to get their OBC. So I feel that in my lifetime, those two things were great, just great. I want to be clear that my activism was minuscule. <laughs> that was Sarah Feigenholz and Militia Mitchell that were, yes. worked so hard on having the law changed in Illinois. And I got to, I guess, be on the, like, the other side of participation, just letting people see and know and and recognize what it meant to us as adoptees. You know, Jean Strauss did the film, A Simple Piece of Paper, which I participated in. And Absolutely. I, yeah, I just think it was a momentous time for adoptees in Illinois. And so, yeah, you shared in that with me, just kind of coming along with how excited all of us were, because I think I got mine before you, and I was just waiting yes. to hear when you got yours, so I'm glad that happened. Oh, yes. I yeah. just get chills thinking about it. Yeah. So, so. you do your searching, and, and, and it's like a 40-year time Search. frame, right? Where you, mm -hmm. yeah, you're, you're at a standstill, like many adoptees who, during that oh, time. It, it yeah, took I can't... a long time. It's, a lot of it's in my memoir. Yeah. But um, like, step by step by step how I was led to just the right people at the right time. And, and so, yeah. A lot. And so you were able to be in reunion. Tell me who you found first and, and how did it go? Well, I had a good friend that I met through American Adoption Congress who was one of the heads there and he's a psychologist 
and he would come out every year to visit all his adoptive friends. He came and mentored me and explained to me what had happened on a psychological level. Once I realized that, he was a professor at the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point. By then I knew I was, oh gosh, let's see. By then I knew, I knew who my birth mom was, but that was also a, a synchronicity thing because, oh God, I have to go back and forth and back and forth. This is hard. Anyway, I'm not, I'm just going to go forward with meeting him. And he contacted a searcher in uh, Wisconsin who actually went to the library in the cross where I was conceived and where both my birth father and birth mother lived to go to the library and go through their archives. Got a picture of my half-brother and sister and a lot of information about my grandparents and my great-grandparents from there. Well, in the meantime, before all of that, I hired, I had written to Jean Patton, told me that she didn't think the records would ever be open, and got in touch with a private detective that she told me about, and he tried to search and couldn't find. And then I reached out to Cub, which was the Concerned United uh, Birth Parents group, and learned a lot from them. And then I found um, CIRA that was run by Joel Saul at the time. And he had a whole list of tapes you could listen to about the psychology of the adoptee. He was very much into it. And I listened to every tape word for word. And I began to understand what had happened to me. I also had written to Nancy Verrier and um, told her my story. And she wrote back and said that I had experienced two of the worst traumas a child could experience, which was separation from relinquishment um, from birth mother and also sexual abuse as a child. So I was still not really connected to how that had really affected me, but slowly but surely, I was understanding what triggers were and why I was crying all the time and having all these meltdowns. Once my friend Doug started visiting me, he started explaining it all to me. And I started to understand where my dreams were coming from and what triggers I had and how out of control I was into this grief mode and this disenfranchised grief that nobody was acknowledging. And I was finally, they were acknowledging it. And so that's when I connected with my adoptee people, mainly men, who explained it to me. Um, I even called Betty Jean Lipton, who didn't get me at all. And so I, I stopped because I found her to be very cold. Then continued on. Lo and behold, I ended up meeting my future husband in New York City. And we clicked. He lost his father when he was five. And somehow he was very compassionate and very understanding. I moved in with him. And he helped me search for my mom. And I found out that 
She was from La Crosse, Wisconsin, and her last name was Lumley. So I sent away for about 50 phone books from the area around La Crosse, and I circled it a 100-mile radius on the map, and I started sending out letters to all the Lumleys in the phone books asking if anyone had given up a child and if they knew a Dorothy Lumley. I received a few letters back saying they would never give up a child and they were so sorry. From there, what happened, which was a major miracle, is my husband came to me. Oh, I married my husband at the Justice of the Peace because, of course, I was following in my mother's footsteps and got pregnant out of wedlock. But anyway, so... He came to me one day and he said, my brother gave up a child for adoption and he wants to give you the name of a secret underground searcher that helped him find his son. And so I got in touch with her and she led me. She told me exactly how to get my birth records out of the hospital. And I followed her instructions and I did, and my mother's name was on it, and the lacrosse was on it, so I knew where she was. So I called information to get her phone number, and it was listed. And so I gave her a call, and the minute I said, uh, did you give up a child at the cradle adoption agency in 1947, she started hysterically screaming, so I had to hang up. Mm. Yeah. And I didn't have, I, I was like having a panic attack big time and so nervous. I didn't know what to do. So my husband helped me and called her back and let her have it basically because he was very furious that she was acting this way. In the meantime, I told my searcher, what should I do next? And she said, well, Send her baby pictures, send her pictures of your kids, send her pictures of you, and wait. She says, I run into this a lot. Just give it time. So I did that, and about two months later, I did receive a letter back saying, yes, I am your mother. That was wonderful, but everything had to be in secret. She was on a party line where she lived, and she didn't want anyone to find out about me, or she would be outcasted because it was all about her and her secret shame. And she felt like a criminal in many ways and a lot of guilt and, oh gosh, it was tough. So we had, we shared these secret letters back and forth and she wouldn't put her return address on the letters. And then finally she let me call her, but I was only allowed to act like a friend because people could be listening in on the party line. Wow. But we maintained some kind of relationship through the letters up until she went into a nursing home. But uh, that's to make a very long story short. And that's the story. She wouldn't tell me a darn thing. And then she would say, well, we, I hope God would forgive us. And I wanted to say to her, forgive me? I didn't do anything. You're the one that did it. Right. But uh, it was just so bizarre. That is interesting. I mean, she she said she hoped that God would forgive us, meaning you and her? Yes. 
She included me. Like, I was to blame. That's when I really got mad. And so then I said, well, who is my birth father? And she wouldn't tell me. And so my husband got really mad too. And he called her up and he said, listen, Linda's dying. (laughs) She needs to know who her birth father is. And if you don't tell her, she is going to put an ad in the lacrosse newspaper and tell everyone about what you did. Mm. Well, out of fear, she told me. She blurted it out. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. So then I found his name on the cross, and I started to call him, and he would always hang up on me. So you were the secret on both sides, and... Yes. Yeah, they wanted it to be a secret forever. Yeah. Yes, and then they threatened me with restraining orders if I ever dared come to their front door. Mm. And then my, uh, my uncle... My father's brother was the same way. He was even worse. He just kept hanging up on me. I guess it was maybe my father who brainwashed everybody to tell them that I was after their money that I didn't even know that they had and that I was some kind of criminal. (laughs) I didn't know any of this. But I finally found out that that was a lie that was being told as a cover-up story. Until finally I reconnected to my biological half-brother, paternal. Yeah, that's that's the kind of the breakthrough, I I imagine, when you found siblings. Oh, absolutely. And I I found my uh, second cousins once removed first. And they welcomed me with open arms. And so I flew up to Waterloo, Iowa to meet the 12 of them. One of my um, cousins was getting married, so they were having the ceremony. There were 12 kids. There were nine girls and three boys. And so they had the wedding at one of their corn farms in Iowa. And they were just absolutely wonderful. They were open, honest. They told me about their abusive father and the story and that all all the uh, men in that side were womanizers. I mean, it was like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. And I got to see them, and I got to understand how much alike we were. And I was just, like, in awe for the few days that I stayed. And they couldn't have been nicer. It just opened up a whole new world. I had been in touch before with my half-brother on my mother's side. He gave me information, but he didn't. He was very closed about what was happening. I mean, it was just like, well, we were from, we're Prussian and we came from Coburg and he sent me pictures of my mom and my grandparents and him, but nothing was like connecting in my mind. Nothing was really, really helping me. I was still looking in the mirror and still running around asking people, what ethnicity do you think I am? Total strangers. Mm. And some would say Russian aristocracy, some would say German, some would say Scandinavian, and some would say French. And I went, oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) 
then I realized that a lot of the men I was attracted to were also from those areas. Mm. Which were, were, then I started getting very interested with Doug, my friend um, adoptee from who came to visit me because he was very interested in the synchronicity part and he was friends with LaVon Stifler who wrote uh, Synchronicity and Adoption, I think, and she went into the spiritual aspect of the connections that adoptees retain to their bios. And he went on Unsolved Mysteries to talk with a famous psychic about how some adoptees are so connected that they were exactly like their bios without realizing it, up to the point where one artist adoptee painted the exact same tea set up to the tablecloth and the decorations on the tea set that were in her birth mother's house. I really enjoyed that book. It. Yeah, synchronicity. Wasn't that the best? Yeah, that book. You're going to have me I pull love, it back out. <laughs> yeah, I love connecting to other adoptees who get it. They've had the same experiences, like they married a man that looked just like their birth father, and on and on and on. Mm. And it's just such a revelation to us and spooky at the same time because nobody really understands where it's coming from. And, of course, nobody in the adoption com community would ever talk about that, ever, ever, ever. I mean, that would be a huge taboo because that would completely debunk everything they're trying to say. So to so what are you... Yeah, what would you say has meant the most to you about being in Reunion? Finding myself and being able to reconnect to the, my soul being and the real person that I have always been that was covered up, ignored, pushed down, repressed, unrecognized. I also found out that my half-brother was also a gifted artist like myself and nobody in my adoptive family understood it or cared. And he actually started his own art gallery, started sending me line drawings that he'd done and how good he was, but he was told in college that only 10% of artists can make it in the world and live on an income so that he better get a different job. Whereas I also was told in college, the same as he was, that I was a gifted artist. Nobody told me about the other part, that you can't make money off of it. But it was just like I was selling my art since I changed my major in college to art, to creative design. Nobody in my adopted family knew how good I was. I mean, we were, we were great artists. And it just kills me to this day to know that, well, we're good friends now. And he sends me doodles and he sends me cards. He's wonderful. But it's just sad that we were separated because it never should have happened because we were like twins, you know, had the same gifts. And I found my other gifts too of music and writing. My bio father wrote articles for for a uh, outdoors magazine. One of my cousins is a fabulous singer. 
And one of my other cousins played the flute and was a graphic designer like me. We even wore the same patterned dress. I wore it in a skirt at the reunion, and she had it on as as a dress. And it was just, like, unbelievable. I was like, oh, my God, my God, this is crazy. So once I started making all these new connections, and I'm still making them, coming out of the fog, as Doug would say, for adoptees, it's like coming out of, of a coma because we've been so trained to be someone else and into our artificial self that we don't even recognize our authentic self until years and years of work. Well, I so, truly I mean, hope yeah. that you do write another book and because you have more to say. They say you write another book if you have something more to say. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I hope you do. I really... I hope you do. So, well, we'll yeah, see, it right? It may take some time. <laughs> yeah, I have to just figure out where I want to begin. Right. I'll think about it. And it, my my creative process comes to me from some other world, from the spirit world. It's like I'm channeling. It's not any. It, it it has control over me, and I'll wake up in the morning. That's my favorite time to wake up. Just before, just when I wake up from. And my mind is fresh, and it's telling me things. My mind tells me all sorts of things. It's like uh, there's something inside of me that just is in control of me, and it's just mind-blowing. And um, so when the time is right and I get it all together, then I will find the words. That's how I write. I write from my soul and my heart and from this uh, whoever is channeling (laughs) From the higher powers. Yeah. Well, I guess we can we can wrap things up. If sure. there's anything that I didn't ask you that you want to share, please do well, so. Well, no, I would like to tell other adoptees to, if they ever need, um, I mean, there's so many groups now out there on social media that they that that didn't exist when I was coming up and before I wrote my book and after I wrote my book. Now they're everywhere, and I think adoptees are talking. And if they want to know more, they can always instant message me on Facebook on my page for adoptees, or I'm on Instagram. I don't know. The younger ones may need to know more or may... I don't know. It's just like it's, it's so fluid now, as you know. And your podcast is fantastic. So, I don't know. I feel like I paved the way for some. And it's almost like mm, at 75, I'm kind of still there. And I have my followers. Everybody seems to be awakened and enlightened now. And so, I feel glad that I was a part of that. And I was like a pioneer in that in my own way. You certainly have So, that's have basically been. it. Yeah. Thank Some days you. I'd like to just retire, but now I'll stick around. Yeah, stick around. <laughs> Continue to make I major will. contributions. <laughs> Thank you for this interview. I really appreciate it, and I hope it helps someone somewhere. I'm sure it in will. In their journeys. And thank you for taking the time to have this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Anytime. And you take care, and I love you dearly. In Melinda's bio, she states, 
Today, adoptees are taking back their voices and sharing their thoughts and feelings in groups on Facebook, blogs, podcasts, YouTube, Instagram, and on and on. Adoptees are finally talking out loud. I agree, and it's wonderful that the adoptee movement is in full effect. One-on-one as adoptees, Melinda has helped me unpack what being an adopted person feels like. With her, I have felt a deep sense of belonging instead of an uncomfortable need to fit in. I highly recommend that adoptees attend conferences within our community, be in healthy adoptee spaces, and perhaps most importantly, build a solid ongoing relationship with at least one other person who has experienced relinquishment and adoption. Of course, find what works best for you. Thank you, Melinda, for having a conversation with me. We go back over a decade of building and maintaining a relationship as two adoptees, asking the questions for more answers. We shared in the excitement during 2012 when we were able to see our original birth certificates because Illinois changed its adoption laws. Going forward, I'm thrilled to know that you are still helping other adoptees navigate their way in adoption land, and I have a strong inclination that you will be doing that for many years to come. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit jenniferdianeghoston.com. Thank you for being here, and please check out my website for other episodes. Once upon a time in adopteeland.com.